Hello. So I'm back with hopefully the third and final part of my series of lectures on Terry Eagleton's chapter 5 on psychoanalysis. Now until now what we have covered in the previous two lectures is Eagleton's discussion and explanation of basic theory of Freud. Then his discussion of Lacan's rereading of Freud and rendering it through linguistic and post-structuralist vocabularies, right? And you already have those lectures, and I encourage you to uh, watch those. In this part, I will briefly dwell on mostly. how he tackles the question of the usage of psychoanalysis like how do people use psychoanalysis mobilize it in their literary studies but also in their studies of cultures and uh, i will be relying on of course eagleton's own words and he starts with um you know on page 155 and he says psychoanalytical criticism in other words can do more than hunt for phallic symbols right um it can tell us something about how literary texts are actually formed and reveal something of the meaning of that formation okay psychoanalytical literary criticism can be broadly divided into four kinds he says depending on what it takes as its object of attention and this is kind of his way of saying there are four ways people have used psychoanalytical criticism by focusing on the author by focusing on the content of the work by focusing on informal construction what goes into constructing a text and by focusing on the reader now he also tells us that most of the times the critics stay focus on the first two and that is the author and the content right and what he says is that most psychoanalytical criticism has been of the first two kinds which are in fact the most limited and problematic uh, so the author when you are reading about the author it's highly speculative and in and it runs into the same kind of problems as we had with the retrieving the authorial intention in other kinds of scholar uh, scholarship and you know it can be about commenting on the unconscious motivations of characters that's what a lot of people do the second part they focus on the content and sometimes it can be as simple as this is an id character this is an superego character this is an ego character and both of these approaches reading the author's consciousness through freudian slips and other things into a text or just dwelling on the text and looking at freudian symbols in it eagleton finds it you know not really a very exciting thing to do with psychoanalysis right now in the process of discussing this he also tells us how certain aspects of freudian psychoanalysis can enable us to look at literature differently and he goes on page 157 to freud's work on dream work right so remember when the analyst asks you or me or 
you know anyone else to record our dreams the purpose is to record them as correctly as possible but in the process there is always what freud terms a secondary revision and the secondary revision of the dream is to give it a coherent narrative right to read whatever symbolics or anything that the unconscious is throwing at us and on page 157 eagleton talks about is one stage of the dream work known as secondary revision consists in the reorganization of the dream so as to present it in the form of a relatively consistent and comprehensive narrative right now he says well this is kind of like literature most of the literary theory he says and i'm quoting uh, so so far in this book could be considered a form of secondary revision of the literary text in this it's obsessive pursuit of harmony coherence deep structure or essential meaning such theory fills in the text gaps and smooths over its contradictions domesticating its disparate aspects and diffusing its conflicts it does this so that the text may be so to speak more easily consumed so that the path is made straight for the reader who will not be ruffled by any unexplained irregularities so most literary scholars that we know of or that we have read in our class do that like look for ambiguities look for the tension new critics how are those tensions resolved how to represent the work as an organic whole all of that is kind of rendering a text which may not be graspable in its entirety into a reduced form a rationalized form into a narrative structure that becomes more understandable so in a way a lot of the work that critics have been doing even structuralists looking for deep structures they were doing a secondary revision of the literary text even barth at its more at his more uh, you know revolutionary phase when he's talking about the writerly text the rewriting of the text by the critic in a creative form is a secondary revision right and that is pretty much how freud describes the secondary revision so literary study whether we are using psychoanalysis or not is kind of like that but what he says is that there are other critics who have used um you know psychoanalysis for a the last two purposes for reading the informal construction of the text itself right so one of them is what he calls the hermeneutics of suspicion and its concern is not just to read the text of the but to uncover the processes the dream work by which that text was produced to do this it focuses in particular on what have been called symptomatic places in the dream text so this is when we're talking about the dream text right the, the same hermeneutics of suspicion then can be applied to a text right but not to its content alone but in a way what pierre macquerie calls the reading the silences of the text what the text doesn't say right but whatever it doesn't say what it takes for granted is it constitutes it like let me give you an example right for example um when uh, 
Althusser reads Capital, right? He has a book called uh, Reading Capital, right? When he reads it, what he's saying is, I'm going to read the silences of this text. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is that if we read in Capital Volume 1, 2, and 3, not what Marx says, because everyone reads that, but what is left unsaid, what Marx assumes as established knowledge upon which he's building this edifice called Capital Volume 1. By knowing what he's taking for granted and not even explaining, we can understand the text better. That is what we call reading the silences of the text. Uh, for people like me who are post-colonialists, when we do, you know, uh, when we approach a text, we don't don't just, let's say, for example, Achebe's reading of Heart of Darkness. One mode of reading is he's a racist because he says these, these things about Africans. Fine. But another mode of reading is by saying, here are so many things about Africa that are elided, that are not represented. All the African characters are silent. Only two of them speak. They are represented as victims alone. We don't know whether they are capable of rational thought. We only know of their presence on the bank of the river as this menacing presence. The adjectives that are used to describe them, all of those are hermeneutics of suspicion based in what a text elides, right? And so we can apply that to the reading of a text because that's what also goes into constructing a text. And that would be um, a better mode of reading the text. Then he gives us discussions of certain big names, like people like Norman Holland, which who has a famous book, I think it's called With Respect to the Readers. Now, these are the people, like Holland argues, and he is into a certain kind of empirical reading of the text, but what he go, says is that the text does something to the reader, right? Every text, when it's brought to a reader, impacts the reader in one way or the other and the way the readers feel or experience a text also can be read as the meaning-making process. So I'm quoting from page 158. Holland sees works of literature as setting in motion in the reader an interplay of unconscious fantasies and conscious defenses against them. The work is enjoyable because by devious formal means, it transforms our deepest anxieties and desires into socially acceptable meanings. So what do we understand? We sublimate as we read it. If it did not soften these desires by its form and language, allowing us sufficient mastery of and defense against them, it would prove unacceptable. But so would it if it merely reinforced our repressions. So here is another usage of psychoanalysis, but now focusing on the reader, what a work does to a reader's consciousness, what kind of latent tendencies that does it touch upon, what does it invoke in our unconscious, and how does then it appease it or satisfy it. And so we could use psychoanalysis to read the impact of the text on the reader's consciousness, right? Then he goes to Harold Bloom. Sorry, it's our dog uh, trying to tell me I need to take her out. So um, Harold Bloom is the one who also uses, you know, psychoanalysis 
to build a whole school of thought in Renaissance studies and others as well. But his term is anxiety of influence. So what he does, Eagleton says, is to rewrite literary history in terms of the Oedipus complex. How does he do that? So the way Bloom suggests is that in any age, poets, right, they are anxious about their predecessors or people who are great poets in their own times, right? And they know that they are being judged against. And that's the anxiety that forces them to go into previous works, right? And then to learn to counter that, to write better, right? Or to even unravel the previous poets' work so that their own works can stand out. And that is the anxiety of influence is what, you know, Bloom considers a very creative force. Right. And, and you can read his monumental book on it. But that's another use of psychoanalysis in building a whole theory of productivity and of literary writing. Right. Then uh, he also touches upon on different pages on different people. He talks about Kristeva's reading of Lacan, especially, and we will probably have a lecture on this, I will record it, uh, is Kristeva's use of um, the symbolic order being the law of the father, and against that what she calls the semiotic order, that's the imaginary in Lacan, and how she argues that women who write are closer to the womb and thus closer to the semiotic order and can therefore write differently. Now, it's a highly contested argument, but that comes from feminism. He gives us a brief description a description of Althusser. Althusser is one of very few people who, who combines psychoanalysis, especially Lacanian psychoanalysis, of course, with Marxism, by using the theory of the subject. Right, as it comes from Lacan. Now, I find Eagleton's reading of Althusser kind of a bit shoddy, but I plan to record a full lecture on it. But if anyone wants to go and read ahead about my understanding of Althusser and how he uses ideology and, um, you know, the theory of the subject formation. Uh, you can read my introduction to my last book on ISIS, and I, I think I spent about 10 pages on discussing Althusser just because I was using it. And then uh, psychoanalysis is also very importantly used in the field of critical uh, pedagogy. And these are people who rely on studies of consciousness, studies of brain to argue about how to teach better how to teach in a way that students actually become critically thinking human subjects. And these are the people who increasingly rely on Lacanian psychoanalysis, right? And I think the most prominent on it is Mark Brocker, his work, Radical Pedagogy. And they're also the people who talk about theory of recognition, how we all feel the need to be recognized in opposition to, uh, you know, the Marxist, redistribution register. And these are some of the fields in which psychoanalysis has been used, is being used, either Lacanian or Freudian. 
Now, one person that I didn't mention here, of course, is uh, uh, Marcus, right? And his work, Eros and Civilization. Now, Eagleton talks about that there is a great possibility uh, where theorists and philosophers have now started talking about uh, Eros, right? And pleasure. Because remember, Freud basically acknowledges that this entire edifice of civilization is built on repression, right? And that has its consequences, right? And the quote that I shared, I think, in my first lecture was Freud suggesting that a civilization that is built on uh, a few people having the maximum resources and rest of the world repressing their desires to fulfill the need of the few is is not a viable civilization. And he does that in... Uh, uh, I think in his book Civilization and its Discontents I think I could be wrong but then Marcuse goes and writes his most prominent work which is called Eros and Civilization and he brings the Marxian dialectical materialism right, and Freudian theory of repression and tries to theorize how to create a subject right, or a future in which we can create a world that is not based in repression, repression, where we can figure out a way of expressing our drives, right? It was a huge book. Another person who's crucial in, in theorizing that in, of course, Deleuze and Gothari already are out there, right? Who are philosophers of desire. But uh, from someone who combines Marxism with this also is Franco Berardi. Right, his book, uh, I have a lecture on it called uh, The Soul at Work, right? In which at one point he discusses, you know, how we ought to theorize wealth. And he says, well, maybe instead of theorizing wealth as accumulation of capital, maybe we could theorize it or talk about it as, as access to leisure time. And, and that already means that we are into pleasure, right? Or and, and create a world in which we can live in peace without neurological problems, without depression. And that also would not be possible without a knowledge of psychoanalysis, both Lacanian and Freudian. So overall, what we learn then is that and this is one of the very few chapters in which Eagleton actually goes and reads a text. So please read it and you see how he does it. So four ways of reading uh, is what he talks about. And those, of course, are um, you, as a mo mode of reading, four ways of reading. I'm just trying to share my screen here. Uh, what he says is that one is when we focus on the author. The second is when we work focus on the contents of the work. And these are the two where we are trying to look for authorial intention or we are trying to look for, uh, you know, symbols, Lacanian or Jungian symbols within a text. A lot of people do that. Eagleton doesn't consider it significant enough. What he says is that the important is the last two where we look at the libidinal and other informal construction, the structures that construct a text, right? That would be revolutionary. And then what a text does to the reader's consciousness, how does the reader respond to it and why that would be a better mode of reading.
then we have you know towards the concluding part of the chapter here is what i find the important part of the chapter um and he says the problems of literary value and pleasure would seem to lie somewhere at the juncture of psychoanalysis linguistics and ideology and little work has been done here as yet we know enough however to suspect that it is a good deal more possible to say why someone enjoys certain arrangements of words than conventional literary criticism has believed now because we can say that the reason we can say that is because we have access to psychoanalysis we have access to freud we have access to lacan and remember before he makes this claim he gives us that fourth the example of baby right another quote here is one of the richest traditions to have emerged from freud's freud's own writing is one very far removed from the preoccupations of lacan it is a form of political psychoanalytical work engaged with the question of happiness as it affects whole societies right and i just talked about that eros and civilization franco berardi's work and then there are a lot of other theorists too especially feminists who talk about pleasure right and how to create a world in which we can be less neurotic less stressed right where we enjoy life more maybe where we love more right in opposition to this repressed society where we must repress our desires for a long time so that those can be gratified after 15 years or 20 years because that's what the civilizational structure is built on so a lot of work is moving into those directions actually the 90s entire decade was about desire right most scholarly works was were dealing with this issue of desire but a lot of work is still needed in theorizing that and that opens the space for you know discussions of reading for pleasure right which is derided still in so many schools and universities but why is it pleasurable to read right what does reading do for me for my mind what kind of unconscious desires surface when i read a work now also keep in mind that critical pedagogy scholars for example are very strong advocates of sentimental novels and sentimental poetry because what their point is that when we read about our global others in a way that it's a moving account that makes us feel empathetic or sympathetic to them that can literally rewire our brains make us more compassionate more caring all of this in one way or the other is also connected to psychoanalysis so this is where i'm going to stop uh it has taken me you know three lectures to cover this chapter but i'm still sure i've missed a lot of things so overall this is terry eagleton's discussion of psychoanalysis both lacanian and freudian psychoanalysis and its usages now of course I'm pretty sure you'll have questions and if you have questions please feel free to put them in the comments send them my way and I'll try to answer those and I will also try to record a separate lecture on Althusser until then 
Thank you so much and see you next time. And bye.